Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Fully vaccinated Canadians can now travel across the U.S. border for non-essential travel. Hamilton City Council being asked to do more to address local big issues. How is Hamilton's homeless encampments issue developing? A McMaster doctor tells us how COVID-19 is impacting cancer diagnoses. Pfizer and Merck have developed a pill to fight COVID. And we remember the life and legacy of CFL legend Angelo Mosca. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Still chatting about the border opening, and now that the U.S. border has reopened to non-essential travel, yes, are you going to make a run to the border anytime soon? It's the focus of our Twitter poll question at AM900CHML. 86% say no, I have no plans to go. 14% say yes, USA here I come. You can vote now on Twitter at AM900CHML. With the border officially opening today, we welcome to Good Morning Hamilton Global News reporter Morgan Campbell. Morgan, good morning. Good morning. So I think many Canadians are saying finally they've been waiting <laughs> a long time for this day. It's been a long wait. You know, honestly, I wish I could um, show you guys like the the smiles on people's faces. It's absolutely (laughs) incredible. And you can see cars that are just jam-packed with suitcases and household items, a lot of people heading to vacation properties, some people just wanting to go shopping even. Um, Pretty high-spirited. I mean, even the border agents (laughs) seem to be quite happy. And I know that sometimes it can be uh, a little, you know, nerve-wracking to cross the border, but uh, it's a it's a pretty upbeat feeling here today. Now, are you going to be uh, seeing the other side of the equation? Because when they get back from the U.S., uh, I'm not sure if they'll still be smiling after they have to pay all that money for those PCR tests. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, um, that that's the thing, is it's so easy to get into the U.S. All you need is your passport, obviously, but you know, proof of vaccination. It's coming back to Canada. That is the issue. You have to provide a PCR test within 72 hours. And, you know, we're hearing that they really range in prices from, you know, $150 to to $300. But for some of the people that we spoke to today, I mean, it's a it's a small price to pay. There was one woman who said she's waited I think she said 183 days or something. So, I mean, that just kind of puts it into perspective how how badly some folks just need to to get down south. Uh, Sean O'Shea, Global News reporter, reporting from Ellicottville, New York, this morning, uh, saying that there's a clinic there that's offering free tests three days a week. I can imagine a lot of these clinics, similar clinics, popping up. As long as you come to our city and spend your money, yeah, we'll give you a free PCR test. That could be a game changer. Absolutely. And here's the thing, too. You have to, to put this into perspective. As much as uh, as, as anyone else in, in Canada, I mean, the U.S. wants, you know, Canadian travelers to come back, right? I mean, you look at some of these border towns. It, where Sean O'Shea is today is a huge attraction for skiers and snowboarders in uh, in the GTA, Hamilton area. A, a lot of people prefer to go down there instead of even going to Blue Mountain. So a lot of places have actually put together these put together these packages to entice people to come. Buffalo. You know, um, they've dedicated uh, a person who is working in tourism to try to attract Canadians to come down and and spend their money here. 
So, you know, when you really put it into perspective, this is more than just vacation time for a lot of people. This is is, is really a lot of um, people's livelihoods. Even last evening, my camera guy and I went out to um, dinner in Buffalo and so many restaurants were closed and they were closed because they just don't have the people, right? And you would think what a Sunday night in, in Toronto looks like, it's, it's busy. So these border towns are really, really, well, you know, getting excited to welcome back these Canadian travelers um, because they've, they've clearly, uh, it's impacted the bottom line, that's for sure. Absolutely. Morgan Campbell is a digital vid- video journalist at Global News, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. What advice or what rules are in place for parents who have kids and are crossing the border? Well, um, anyone under 18 will be exempt from that vaccination requirement if you're coming into the the U.S. Now, those under 12 heading back to Canada will have to quarantine for 14 days regardless of their PCR test results. So these are some things that you really need to take into consideration before you pack up the car and head out to the border because... Um, if you do have kids, the stipulations are a little different and um, you need to make sure that you, you know, have all of those checks and balances in place before before you head out, because it would be a major disappointment to to learn that only after, you know, coming back to Canada. Very much so. Morgan, really appreciate the time today. Safe travels back into Canada. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A local group focused on recovery post-pandemic wants to see equity as part of the city's budget deliberations. Joining us now on Good Morning Hamilton is Carl Andrus from the Just Recovery Hamilton Coalition. Carl, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So what does your group want to see here? Well, I'll be be quite frank with you. We came together as a a now ever-growing list of not-for-profits to focus on some of the key issues that were really exposed by the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, we we talk about um, injustice and we talk about um, systemic issues in our society, but I think for everybody, the COVID-19 pandemic really revealed some deep faults in our society and the way we treat, uh, especially uh, those among us who are are not uh, as equitably... uh, and economically uh, fortunate. And so this this group came together uh, last year, just around this time, we're at the one year anniversary pretty much of our formation, um, to put together a budget policy paper with 150 recommendations for the city of Hamilton in order to build back better from the, the COVID-19 um, pandemic and listed a whole series of things ranging from small ticket items that didn't cost any levy to other items that would require additional funding from ever, other levels of government. Can you highlight maybe one or two of those 100-plus recommendations? Uh, I mean, what I can do is talk a little bit about the themes to really give... Uh, folks uh, a chance to engage on these subjects as opposed to dying into the minutiae of the policy paper. We came together around budget delegation time to just ask city council to look at all of the problems that were revealed by the COVID-19 pandemic and ask them to increase investment in women and child care, to start tackling systemic racism, to look at housing as a human right. So this very concept that everybody has a right to a roof over their head and a home to call their own. We wanted to see further investment in green infrastructure and a focus on inclusive 
city building. We wanted to see our recovery come with decent jobs, with good pay for to invest in our local economy. We, of course, wanted to see um, some mobility and justice issues tackled, as well as supporting the 2SLGBT communities. And what this coalition, um, which is diverse, as I can say, as the... <clears throat> pardon me, as the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, all the way to the Hamilton District Labor Council and organizations all between on the political spectrum to really talk about just what the city can do to work collaboratively to build better. Now, Carl, you're revisiting this call as city councillors get set to sit down and, and discuss with staff some of the budget implications for the upcoming year. So do I get the sense that the group is okay with the tax increase going well above the recommended 2% around the city hall table, as long as that money is uh, geared towards uh, things that are going to address some, uh, some of the items in your themes? Well, that's a great. That's a great question, and I really appreciate uh, you asking it. As um, your listeners will know, um, City Council has asked staff to look at only a two percent budget increase this year. And I can tell you collectively, our, our organizations are in favor of a better distribution of the spending of our tax dollars. Um, so we would definitely like to see um, perhaps not a tax increase. I guess what it's good to remind your listeners of is there are some things the city can invest in that actually pays dividends with your local tax dollars. And those things can be something as simple as sidewalk snow shoveling to make sure that people aren't trapped in their homes during a snowfall event. As you know, climate crisis has made snowfall a much greater concern. And I know a lot of folks expressed last year over the debate around uh, sidewalk clearing alone, and that's something they felt a minor tax increase would be very useful to everyone involved, not only in saving the city in terms of lawsuits and saving our health care system in terms of, of the pure damage that's caused by slip and falls on the ice, but also just making sure that other residents of Hamilton could get out of their home. So it's a question of really what we're asking the city to do is prioritize how they're spending and to look at this once in a century. And let's try and remember people, it's been 100 years since we've had a pandemic this bad to maybe not look at business as usual at City Hall in terms of minor tax increases here or fiddling with the budget here and there. Um, so we're really asking for some serious investments in our ever-changing city. Your, your listeners have probably noticed already some of the climate effects that are starting to have direct implications on our stormwater fee system and overflows into our, our water tables. They've probably seen erosion of our harbor and our beaches. So these are all things that the city can invest on now while they're relatively inexpensive to do, or they can invest on in another 10 years with a much bigger price attached to it. Our guest is Carl Andrus from the Just Recovery Hamilton Coalition. Uh, it's a local group that's focused on recovery post-pandemic, and it wants to see some uh, action from the uh, city council table in regards to its budget deliberations. What kind of response have you received from councillors? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, um, quite frankly, I know that uh, some, some folks who come on the programs like to be uh, overly critical of council. And I, I will say that the council has been a, a willing partner. They have added a budget delegation day for the first time since... Uh, I, I can remember in, in my lifetime here in delegating in front of city council. So there's now two opportunities, one at the beginning of the budget and one at the end of the budget process for residents to really write their counselors, get engaged with the budget process, really let them know what's important. As I said, I mentioned some of the, the wins that um, city council was able to bring forward, uh, looking at investment in transit and looking at investment in sidewalk snow shoveling, although that is a, a budget program that could face a cut if they do keep to that 2% limits. Um, so there's been some progress. I wouldn't say that they, you know, accomplished all 150 items on the list, but there's certainly been some willingness to have these conversations and to, to look at, at changing the way things are done at city council.
So many heavy-hitting items on your wish list, if you will, or recommendations in terms of racism, inclusivity, creating more jobs, getting greener, housing affordability. I mean, these are all heavy, really uh, difficult things to address uh, and, and correct in some cases. Where do you start? What, what, what would be the top recommendation? Well, my top recommendation is that the city just look at how these all of these topics intersect with one another and not try and look at them in a vacuum by themselves. It's fun, it's interesting to say that something like access to child care um, uh, might have a direct impact in workforce participation of, of women. So obviously unemployment plays into child care. And I know that there are some motions coming up before city council to request a direct federal negotiation between Hamilton, the city of Hamilton and the federal government to get $10 a day child care. Um, so there, these are some, some, some very simple things. Um, looking at a living wage policy, paid sick days. Um, even if the city just builds those into all of its subcontracts for all of its subcontractors, they can have a massive change on the way in which um, the city uh, spends its capital money and its its operating money without you know digging too deep into pocketbooks and having that net effect of, of paying on down the line by paying a living wage, by having paid sick days. I would also point out that one of the uh, items that was uh, hopefully the city council will consider addressing was the investment in um, in the arts. There hasn't been a substantial uh, reinvestment by in the city's enrichment fund in the arts in several years. As you can imagine, with other public health priorities, the city hasn't looked at that. So uh, artists and art-related fields are one employment area that really got heavily hit by the pandemic. I just want to stress that each one of these is a force multiplier for the other. When you invest in a long-term care facility um, or in a city-operated residential care facility, you're investing in extra jobs for women. So they, they all pay dividends along the line. It's just you have to kind of get beyond that that fixed one two percent number in a budget line item there's a lot of things to consider here but a great discussion carl thanks for the time today enjoy your day i really appreciate it thank you so much for having me you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml the city of hamilton says in light of the court ruling on homeless encampments its enforcement to the bylaw against tenting in public spaces will resume but city officials say it's going to be done in a respectful and supportive way with trespass tickets and police enforcement uh, used as a last resort part of this process obviously is going to see people without homes accessing local shelters the question is is there enough room? Brother Richard McPhee is the executive director of the Good Shepherd and joins us now on uh, 900 CHML. Brother McPhee, thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Good morning, Rick. How are you? Not too bad yourself. Well, I'm doing okay. So Not too bad the, at all. <laughs> the, the question is, is there enough room in this city for people who've been living in tents? Is there enough shelter space? Uh during COVID, we've created more space, but we've also found ourselves being inundated with a number of people who have been homeless in our community. Uh, it's been a real challenge in terms of keeping up with the demand. And in particular, it's been a challenge even once we get people into shelter, if that's possible, to be able to find them affordable and housing in our community. It's, it's just a, a real nightmare that we're all experiencing right now. Is the challenge with the demand because that demand is constant or that during the pandemic it has been fluctuating from time to time? I think it's a bit of both. I think that what's happened is that for some people who may have been perhaps couch surfing or staying with relatives or whatever, they've often lost their housing and and gone onto the streets or and come to organizations like the Good Shepherd. 
Um, particularly, I think we've been inundated with a number of women, particularly single women, who've uh, come forward and, and are seeking housing within our community in a safe place from the streets. Why do you think that is? Again, I, I think basically housing has become almost un- unaffordable in our community, particularly if somebody's on some type of a fixed income. I, I think that we've seen, um, because of the challenges of COVID, and uh, our healthcare system's response to COVID, the lack of um, admissions to psychiatric hospitals. I've also, I also believe that we've also seen the, the real challenge around people who have an addiction issue that are in, in the lack of uh, addiction treatment programs to meet those individuals' needs. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Brother Richard McPhee, Executive Director of Good Shepherd. We are chatting about uh, homeless encampments coming down in uh, local parks, and now these uh, individuals need a place to uh, put their head down at night and and have some secure shelter. Uh, We know that winter is coming as well, and and that means increased demand for a spot in a local shelter. What is Good Shepherd doing to prepare for this? Well, um, right now we operate a um, 56 additional beds at uh, the Admiral Inn for Women. Uh, we have been uh, operating a 20-bed COVID-positive shelter for individuals that show up in the shelter system that are uh, positive with the COVID virus. And on top of it, we've uh, got about a, a, an additional 100 beds that are available to us at Cathedral High School, the old Cathedral Boys High School at uh, Emerald and um, uh, Main Street. So we've got our own response, but at the same time, I know the city has been trying to locate um, additional resources so that they can, in fact, respond to the needs, particularly as winter comes upon us. This must be just a Herculean effort in terms of coordination with the city and and other agencies in the community. It sure is. And, uh, you know, what we're also seeing right now is the beginning of evictions. And, uh, for example, in our family shelter, we have room for 20 families, and we actually have another 20 families in hotels. So we're actually running almost two shelters with the same amount of resources. Uh, obviously, we're, we're still amid the, the pandemic, but you have mentioned housing affordability in a couple of instances. How debilitating has this been? How extra challenging has this been for individuals and, by extension, Good Shepherd? Well, if you just if we look at the news recently, we saw that Housing in the last year, just to purchase it, went up $240,000. If you can imagine somebody on a fixed income of maybe around less than $700 a month, how are they going to even begin to enter the housing market? And and what we've seen also is some of the rent eviction issues that are going across our community and the, the lack of um, cheap housing that would be available to the clients that Good Shepherd and other agencies may be serving. Brother Richard McPhee has been our guest, Executive Director of Good Shepherds. Uh, thanks for all that you do in this community. It is an amazing uh, endeavor, and, and, and you guys and gals do a phenomenal job. Thanks for the time today, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks a lot, Rick, and uh, thank you to the citizens of Hamilton who continue to support us. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A uh, McMaster University professor says she's worried about the impact of delayed cancer diagnoses due to the pandemic. She has penned a wonderful uh, note uh, on um, 
online that um, the title reads, I'm a pediatric brain surgeon and I'm concerned about the impact of delayed diagnoses for my patients due to COVID-19. Her name is Dr. Sheila Singh and she joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Singh, good morning. Good morning, Rick. I want to read uh, parts of what you wrote and then just get your reaction uh, to that and, and your thought process behind that. Uh, including very often in the last year or so, I have seen children for the first time when they have already reached the end stage of brain cancer. These are children whose illness is dreadfully apparent. They are children whose lives we could have saved if they had been diagnosed even six months earlier. How many similar cases or cases like that have you seen? So, Rick, it's a great question. And I think we're in the process right now of gathering all of the data about what I call the collateral damage of COVID-19. We had a necessary pandemic response. And of course, the public health measures that were implemented were required. But we have to remember that there is uh, a collateral effect from from the the very measures that were intended to keep us safe from COVID. Uh, They may have impact on other aspects of health. And specifically by that, um, I mean that cases of uh, brain cancer that could have been diagnosed earlier had there not been pandemic restrictions, those children could face worse outcomes now um, because of an advanced or delay in diagnosis. And although here in Canada we haven't gathered the data or tallied those totals yet, there are manuscripts and papers emerging from other countries like the UK and Italy documenting delays in diagnosis for cancer patients and both through population-based models and through actual report of cases, we're seeing this um, this uh, collateral damage occurring worldwide. And it's important to raise awareness about it because, you know, there are other policy measures we probably need to react with now. You also pointed to the challenges involved in v- seeing a patient virtually. It's just not the same. Exactly. So as I wrote in my article on the conversation, um, you know, there are two major reasons, I believe, for these delayed diagnoses. And one is that in the initial period of COVID, when we knew very little about the virus, um, I really think that people were scared to come to the hospital. And in fact, I don't just think that. I know that because the parents of my patients have told me that. And unfortunately, there's been some muddled public health messaging where People were advised that if they thought they had COVID, perhaps they shouldn't go to the hospital. They should go to a clinic and get tested. And this has just caused undue uh, anxiety and fear about even going to a hospital in the first place. So if patients don't go to a hospital, then they can't get diagnosed. The second problem is that a lot of doctors were more difficult to access during COVID. People closed their offices. And even now in the news, you've heard about the problems with the delays in, or rather the fact that primary care doctors like general practitioners and pediatricians often don't have good access to office hours even now. And finally, uh, virtual medicine, in my opinion, is not real medicine. If you can't do a physical examination on a patient, then you can't make a diagnosis. And so this has really limited our ability to to make a diagnosis in a timely fashion, which we're actually very good at in Canada. And unfortunately, I've seen a lot of disease that you might see in poorer parts of the world during the COVID pandemic. We've only got about 30 seconds. Post-pandemic, do we expect anything to improve? I hope by raising awareness um, that we can uh, 
put further funding and efforts towards um, sort of reclaiming a lot of these lost diagnoses and getting on top of them faster and implementing more screening programs and more aggressive um, diagnostic measures now. So yes, it will take the partnership of a lot of um, uh, government uh, and policymakers. Dr. Singh, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for writing this too and sharing your thoughts. It should be consumed by many and uh, we need to get uh, obviously to a better place. That It's going to take a long, long time, I'm afraid. Dr. Singh, thanks for the time today. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. UK health officials have approved the Merck pill for fighting COVID-19, and Pfizer says its COVID-19 pill has an 89% efficacy rate. What is the impact of these two developments? When will these pills be approved here in Canada? Craig Janes is professor and director of the School of Public Health and Health Systems at the University of Waterloo and joins us this morning on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Craig. Good morning. What kind of impact do you think this is going to have on vaccine hesitancy? I mean, we've shown to be a pill-popping population. Uh, yes. Well, it's a promising development for sure. Um, you know, I, I think that it probably will be used as a reason for people to avoid getting the vaccine, thinking that somehow this these pills will uh, be a, a panacea. But I think that's probably a mistake. It's certainly a promising development, but it doesn't, these pills don't keep you from getting sick. They're not like antibiotics. They don't cure the disease. They just prevent you from being hospitalized and, and dying. So from that perspective, they're, they're very useful and they're important. They're important part of our our toolbox for ham- managing the disease, but they really don't take the place of prevention. Prevention is always better than cure. Vaccines, masking, all that, I think will still be essential. Uh, Merck announced its preliminary results back in September. It showed its drug cut hospitalizations and deaths by half among patients with early COVID-19 symptoms. Pfizer said just on Friday that its antiviral pill uh, cut rates of hospitalization and death by nearly 90 percent, which is uh, an amazing number. Do we know and maybe a a gut feeling or a sense that you have in terms of um, these antiviral pill long term effectiveness? Or is this something that just like, uh, you know, the the flu, you would take a, um, you know, a a pill to to combat the flu? Yeah, well, we don't know much about the long-term effectiveness. And I think it's important to remember that these these trials that these drug companies run are, are very highly controlled experiments. They don't reflect, <clears throat> excuse me, they don't reflect conditions in the real world. So we don't know the long-term effectiveness. And we also don't know what the side effects of these medications will be either. I haven't seen any of the uh, the safety data. So, uh, but I would, I would certainly be concerned that any kind of long-term use, particularly if people start using them as preventatives and that sort of thing, um, might might lead to some, some serious uh, side effects down the road. Yeah, neither company has released its side effects uh, information. And in terms of the case study numbers, we're talking about hundreds of people, six, seven hundred people in their um, in their studies. Would this, do you think, possibly eliminate the need for annual boosters down the road? You know, I don't think so. I mean, you know, these these medications, the way that they work is just simply to kind of reduce the viral load in the body by interfering with viral replication. So they, you know, they don't keep you from getting sick and and maybe even seriously ill. Um, And uh, they we don't know much about whether they would have any effect or impact on reducing the risk for the long COVID. Uh, so, you know, again, I think that they're really important for uh, reducing hospitalization. I think they're an important part of our our toolbox to, to manage this disease. But I don't think they're going to replace vaccines or boosters.
Craig Janes is our guest. He's a professor and director of the School of Public Health and Health Systems at the University of Waterloo, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Any guesstimate on when Health Canada will will approve or or would approve these drugs? Yeah, well, no, I don't. I have no guesstimate at all. Um, You know, I I think that it'll be a while, is my guess. Um, Although, and I think they'll be watching uh, the UK experience very closely. Uh, as as they roll out the uh, uh, these drugs there, uh, but yeah, I, I imagine it's probably a month or two off at least. Excellent stuff, Craig. Really appreciate the time. Enjoy the rest of your day. Well, thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Sad day on Saturdays. We learned of the death of the great Angelo Mosca, passed away at the age of. 84. I had the chance to interview Ange many times over the years, including back in 2012 when he was nominated to the Ticats all-time team. And I asked Big Ange about getting the nod. Oh, kind of nice. I, I, I know one thing. I did play one, one great one, John Barrow. And we played together for about 12 years. Would he be one of the best, you know, besides yourself? Would he be one of the best guys you've ever played alongside? Yeah, I had... I, I, I didn't play with many of the other guys, and I assure you they they belong there too. But John Barrow was a and John came the year before I did in '57, and I came the next year, and we played together for about I think it was 12 years. What made him so good, and what made you two guys so good? Well, I'll tell you what. You know, I've been talking to a lot of people about the attitudes of guys. When I came here, it was. I didn't know anything about this country, and I, I played the game the way it was designed to be played, and I uh, we played physical and tough and rough. That's the way all of us guys were taught from high school, and uh, that's the way we played the game, and and we played it to, to last. Uh, we didn't play it uh, hoping to go to the NFL because, uh, matter of fact, most of us guys, could have never were in the NFL and never had any thoughts about going to the NFL. Uh, two other guys on this list that uh, you shared some uh, playing time with: uh, Vince Scott and Ed Bevin, also on the uh, the great Tiger Ta- Tiger Cats teams of the uh, the fifties, and uh, at least in Scott's case, the early sixties as well. Both two ugly guys, <laughs> <laughs> but they played beautifully. Yeah, they sure did. They, <laughs> they were they uh, they gave me some memories. Uh, Vince, uh, Eddie Bevan, I played uh, with him uh, for one year, and Vince Scott, we played. I played with him for three years. So, and and then the game changed. Uh, that those uh, shorter guys would weren't even capable of playing in the league anymore, and that's what happened. The game changed. It changed to guys like uh, John and myself. Uh, I, I was actually probably the first 300-pounder to play the game mm-hmm. because I never really said how much I weighed because they always always thought a 300-pound guy was a fat guy. But uh, John Barrow was a heck of a good player. So was Scott and Bevan. And they, they complimented each other for about 10 years before I got there. Uh, being the the size and the weight and uh, and how effective you were, did you get the sense that uh, managements um, across the league were kind of looking at guys like you of like your size? I would imagine so. They started looking, and uh, we had uh, good speed too. And, you know, you got a three hundred pound guy running a four eight five forty. 
that's pretty good timing. And I never weighed under 300 pounds, so, and I used to lie about my weight. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you tell them? I weighed about 285. <laughs> uh, you played uh, 13 seasons with the Tiger Cats, two-time CFL All-Star, four-time East Division All-Star, two-time Most Outstanding Lineman nominee, uh, two-time East Division Most Outstanding Lineman, uh, played in eight Great Cup finals with the Ticats. You won four of them, inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame in 1987. Out of all those achievements, does one stand out? I would say my year was 1963. I had a great year, and I was very fortunate, and I was up for lineman of the year and everything. And and I I, I want to correct something. I played in nine Grey Cups, eight with Hamilton. Yeah, and the other one was with Ottawa, correct? I told Cavillo, uh, how many did you play in? He <laughs> says, uh, uh, eight. I said, that's all you're going to play in. <laughs> I said, I'll come out of the stands and get you. <laughs> uh, these guys weren't ready for me. Uh, I I was with them and uh, at a couple of banquets and uh, their attitudes are a lot different today. And uh, we played the game and Hamilton was a great city. It was totally really made for me. I, I left a city like Boston, went to Notre Dame, which was a tough school to play ball in. And uh, I came here and I, I loved it here. The people were great. The fans were great. The teams were fantastic. And I was very, very lucky that I played on some great football teams and with some great players. And uh, as you uh, and I and everyone else in town knows, this is the uh, last season for Iverwind Stadium. Uh, is there a particular memory or, or a set of memories that uh, kind of flash in your mind as you think of that? Yeah, I'll tell you what. I've always told this story. When I first come here, you know, when you go come from a school like Notre Dame where the stadium holds 70,000 people, and we used to practice across town at the AAA grounds. And uh, I always remember that uh, the po- all the point afters w- were kicked from the end zone into the playing field. I couldn't believe what I saw. And that's the memory that I have. Uh, that uh, We used to save the footballs. We didn't want the fans to have them. <laughs> <laughs> that's tremendous. Those are some good memories that I have. But uh, it, it didn't matter. It was a game of... Uh, it was a very physical game that we played. I don't think most of these guys could play today. It is uh, it is a different time. It is uh, really a different sport when you think of it, even though the rules, you know, most of the rules are still the same. You know, the ratios have changed and all that kind of stuff. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, well, you know, some might see these guys running backwards. I'll never forget Johnny Rogers uh, was a Heisman Trophy winner, and, and he came to Canada here, and I had met him at a banquet, and he said... And he met me, and I said, you know, you're a very lucky guy. And he said, why? I said, you would never run backwards on me one time. <laughs> and, and, you know, that, that's, that's not what the game is all about. Yeah. Uh, the coach has always taught us uh, the biggest insult you can give anybody is you score a touchdown. So why do you have to go do it and rub salt in someone else's face? I agree. Ange, thanks for the time today. Uh, congratulations on the nomination, and uh, we'll see you around the, uh, around the ballpark. Thank you, and um, I know we got some good football players, and they're going to do it this year. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.